Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posting June 10, 2016, we focus on a recent WPJ blog post on the challenge of public sector corruption after the Panama Papers scandals. We'll also point out top features in the current spring issue, cover line, Black Lives Matter Everywhere. But first, some timely insights from Washington with Paul Brandis, who runs the West Wing Reports News Service. Well, with Hillary Clinton now claiming the Democratic nomination for president, the stage appears set for the general election showdown between the former senator and secretary of state and businessman Donald Trump. What do these two propose on foreign policy matters? Let's take a quick look. Both Clinton and Trump have spoken out against free trade agreements, including the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or TPP, that's currently under consideration. Trump has called NAFTA, the free trade deal among the U.S., Canada, and Mexico, a disaster. He says he'd rip it up. NAFTA was negotiated by the first President Bush and signed by President Clinton, but Hillary Clinton says it needs to be reassessed and, quote, adjusted. Trump plans to raise trade tariffs on countries like China and Mexico. Clinton says that's dangerous, pointing out how tariffs made the Great Depression of the 1930s longer and deeper. Trump wants to bring back waterboarding and other brutal interrogation techniques for terror suspects, even though these are widely seen as torture. He has called for a temporary ban on Muslims entering the U.S. and thinks American allies need to pay more for their defense. He's called NATO, the 70-year-old North Atlantic Treaty Organization, obsolete. He'd negotiate with North Korea's Kim Jong-un to stop Pyongyang's nuclear program. Clinton has mocked all of this, calling Trump dangerous and incoherent. President Obama has mocked Trump as well, calling him ignorant and cavalier on world affairs. Obama says foreign leaders are worried about Trump. Trump says that's a good thing. So what do voters think about all this? Polls give Clinton a big edge on managing foreign policy, a nearly two-to-one advantage, according to a recent Wall Street Journal-NBC News survey. She's also seen as a better commander-in-chief than Trump by a 10-point margin. For World Policy On Air, I'm Paul Brandis at the White House. You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. Yeah. We had a very successful cabinet meeting this morning. We were talking about our anti-corruption summit with leaders of some fantastically corrupt countries. Nigeria and Afghanistan, possibly the two most corrupt countries. Echoes of the Panama Papers and their window into secret, questionable offshore finance continue to haunt the world's rich and powerful. British Prime Minister David Cameron, himself named in the record dump of documents from an enabling Panamanian law firm, caused a diplomatic uproar when caught on an open mic with the Queen last month, labeling Nigeria and Afghanistan fantastically corrupt before his big international anti-corruption summit. In lieu of an apology, Nigerian President Mohamedou Buhari called for swift return of national assets diverted to Britain over the years. Afghan President Ashraf Ghani simply agreed with Cameron's indictment, calling it a legacy of the past, but not the desire of our people. In the weeks leading up to the summit, 
Pakistani Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif suddenly sought medical treatment in Britain as calls for his resignation mounted when several family members were linked to offshore accounts. Sharif later returned with a complex plan for parliamentary investigation that prompted an opposition walkout from the National Assembly. In Spain, the Minister of Industry, Energy and Tourism simply resigned. Notably absent from the London summit were some places notable as centers of offshore accounts, including Panama and the British Virgin Islands. And the United States did not join 40 other countries committed to creating and sharing lists of who really owns companies in their territories. Britain, France, the Netherlands, Kenya, Nigeria, and Afghanistan went further, pledging to make such lists of beneficial owners public. The challenge of public sector corruption is the headline on a recent WPJ blog post co-authored by David Fellows, a principal of PFM Connect, covering public financial management for development projects in Africa, Asia, and the Pacific Islands. We talked about it recently for this podcast. David Fellows, welcome to World Policy on Air. Start with a brief description of what your PFM Connect does and the window that it gives you on public sector corruption. Well, what we do really is to try to improve the public financial management performance, basically developing countries. Uh, we do this through a, a variety of, of ways, but really we're interested in the flow of, from policy through budgeting, performance management, and into budgetary control. We're interested in accountancy uh, and revenue and expenditure transactions. So it's a, it's a whole raft of, of things that are to do with the flow of funds um, within countries at national level, at local level, and state-owned enterprises. It gives us a fairly good grasp of what's happening. Give us some idea of how much money is being funneled into tax havens worldwide and from developing countries in particular, and what proportion of developing nations' wealth that amounts to. Well, the uh, Gabriel Zuckman, uh, who wrote a book, Hidden Wealth of Nations, puts the, the amount of uh, worldwide wealth in tax havens at about $7.5 trillion, a staggering 8% of world wealth. And of that, he's suggesting that something like uh, 20% of Latin American wealth and 30% of African wealth uh, is stored in tax havens. Beyond the dollar amount, how does siphoning away such a significant proportion of national wealth impact the rest of a developing country's economy, effective government, the lives of ordinary people? Well, I think the problem uh, with it is the enormous amount of prosperity uh, that is drained from a country and also the way in which it affects uh, impacts on the everyday life uh, of business uh, through uh, whether it's business costs, whether it's the problem of obtaining licenses, establishing businesses and so on, uh, and the slowness of government and the uncertainty of service delivery to the citizens who are left to uh, provide uh, bribes if they want things speeded up, uh, things made to work for them. So in all, I think that the people live in a problematic situation, work difficulties, public service difficulties, and I think in some cases 
there is an evident wish to migrate, to move to uh, more prosperous areas, which doesn't always turn out to be terribly successful. In the category of psychological cost, uh, one reads there's a loss of faith in government. That seems reasonable. Outrage, even radicalization. And I wonder if there's some share of guilt for those who must play along uh, with the system to keep their jobs. Yes, I suppose that's true. I think that people do get bound up into the problem of dealing with corruption. Those that are on the inside of it are under pressure from colleagues, from families to perpetuate the system in order that they can obtain funds uh, and support relatives and, and support colleagues. But on the other hand, they must see the burden it places uh, on the general public, uh, people who are often uh, even less well off than they are, uh, the stress it, it must place on them and the uncertainty of life that they face under such systems. To what degree do you see corruption in developing countries of concern to the West, which of course facilitates it in many cases, but is also looked to for aid and trade? Well, I think the West is, is considerably implicated, really, one way or another, and, and does carry uh, a considerable burden. Bribery can originate in the West, so you've got the problems of uh, Western country, Western firms, Western businessmen offering bribes in order to obtain contracts and work uh, in developing countries. You've got Western countries, parties, to international agencies and agreements that um, themselves seek to combat uh, bribery and corruption, the World Bank, the UN, the OECD, and so on. Uh, you've also got the humanitarian reaction, I think, to the plight of victims of corruption. And you've got a common interest in the world economy, uh, because for sure, bribery and corruption does have a deteriorating effect on the economy of the, de of the uh, developing world, and, and that impacts everybody. You mentioned the role of international agencies in discouraging uh, key forms of corruption, uh, making bribery illegal, and as I understand it, even prosecutable in the Western country that might be involved. Talk a little more about some of these international regulations or standards that have been set up. Yes, the UN has a convention uh, on corruption. I think that was set up in uh, 2004, and the OECD has an anti-bribery convention that goes back to, I think, 1997. So these uh, two uh, organizations really see the need to obtain a better standard of conduct in Western countries in their dealings uh, with the developing world. These conventions seek a number of things, but in particular, they both seek the uh, prosecution of, of uh, people in the West uh, who go abroad and indulge in uh, corrupt behavior uh, to obtain contracts and, and other business favors. And uh, these conventions have been taken up by a, a good number of countries and prosecutions are taking place all the time. Uh, quite a record of, of success is uh, started uh, to be achieved. But better public financial management in country is also key to combat corruption, you say. Location-specific action prioritized on three factors, to quote your piece. What are the three factors? Well, I think that what we 
what we need is to obtain uh, a clear sight of what is uh, most detrimental uh, in a country. For instance, is it the rule of law? Is it extractive industries? Is it economic diversification? What are the key requirements and what are the key drivers of the corruption? Are we looking at national uh, level? Are we looking at local level or state-owned enterprises? We need some sort of view of, of where we need to uh, attack the problem uh, most urgently. And we also need to un understand what, what measures will be most effective. For instance, if one has important uh, dignitaries in particular places that are not going to shift the stance that will be helpful to fighting corruption, then one needs to find some other opportunity. Opportunity and priority, I think, is is important uh, in deciding which measures will be effect most effective at a particular time. And then I think there's the capacity of the administration. Now that seems to me to be a really important point because you can have administration uh, which has got a, a reforming zeal but has not necessarily got the capacity to uh, introduce the most sophisticated systems. We, we hear quite a bit about the need for electronic governance. We, we need perhaps sophisticated accounting systems, revenue systems, and so on. The question is uh, whether or not the systems themselves can be administered, whether there is the computer staff, whether they are administrators to actually inform the systems and keep them alive, whether there's the hardware or the network available. And so we've got to be practical, I think, in the way in which we look at ways in which these problems can be overcome. I think we've also got to bear in mind that when you've got uh, a complex administration, you might have people at the top in, in say, a central finance department who are well capable of following fairly complex routines. But when you're depending on uh, decentralized uh, administration to follow through in some of uh, the tasks that are required, then you need to be sure that the plans you have for uh, rolling out your new system can be coped with by those uh, elsewhere in the administration who will need uh, to, to use them in, in, uh, in everyday terms. And you say that motivation ultimately comes from transparency for the public at large, which involves uh, accessibility of information and communication of it to the public. Yes, I think that when you look at the way in which the government of a country should set itself up to make itself available to the people, you've got to say, well, are you telling people what you're doing, why you're doing it, and are you giving them enough information for them to assess whether they are getting value for money and whether you're actually doing what you say you intend to do for them. I, this is the whole issue of transparency and it affects financial management. It affects so much else in public life. One needs a proper system of, of financial management that embraces transparency. If you're going to get the credit for your successes and if you're as a government are going to be put under pressure to reform where reform is required. That, of course, is something that governments uh, often seek to avoid. And, and in that, the freedom of the press is extremely important. Without that, 
governments can be relieved a great deal of pressure and that can add to the corrupt environment. The internet is increasingly critical to access and communication of information these days. And you say online connections may also prove less vulnerable to corruption than personal contact. Yes. If you've got uh, an online system, then the system almost necessarily doesn't have uh, the personal engagement of the bureaucrat to seek one way or another uh, a bribe for progressing the work. The system is turned on and, and the interaction commences and the payments can also be made online if the system facilitates that and uh, where that happens then you've got a complete chain of, of request and delivery without uh, personal intervention. You've also got a computer trail which enables the system to be audited. The computer system of course itself needs to be properly audited to make sure that there aren't problems with it that enable uh, money to be siphoned off from the payments made, but nevertheless, it offers a way forward to reduce the, uh, the personal involvement that allows bribery to take place at, at, at a petty level. Is corruption more or less a problem because of the increasing popularity of outsourcing government services to private contractors, mostly to save on uh, payroll and benefits? Yes, I'm not sure about that. I think it depends really on how carefully you you vetted your companies, uh, how carefully you oversee their work, and the the due diligence you've done before you you engage them. These things are are never completely certain. But if but there should be little intrinsic reason why uh, outsourced work should be more uh, prone to corruption, theft, than, than internal, providing you're actually looking, taking a broad view of what sort of flows of funds you're expecting through the system. Do you check from time to time on how the system is operating? So you've got to have access to the system, you've got to have an audit capacity, and you've also got to be satisfied with the internal audit capacity of the outsourcer. I can't, I can't say that, that, that there is necessarily a problem with that, but uh, in, in such a, an environment, you really need to be able to say, well, this country or that country has got the capacity to cope with that sort of outsourcing. Clearly, uh, substantial sums uh, of money pass if one's talking about payroll, but then significant uh, amounts of corruption uh, have taken place over recent years in, uh, in payroll environments where they're handled in-house. Um, so it's, uh, it's a problem for, for all firms and for all uh, public uh, sector undertakings, uh, however the job is done. Talk about the role that you see in the fight against uh, uh, public uh, sector corruption for development partners, particularly large aid organizations. Well, I think the development partners really can play quite a crucial role here in terms of looking for the opportunities for, for change, for reform, looking at the way in which personnel are changing within uh, the public service, looking at the way in which uh, constitutional changes may uh, give rise to new opportunities. 
and forging uh, links with the right people in order to understand what is happening, to provide advice, but also to manage the interaction then of other donor partners who may come on the scene with various initiatives uh, who can at, uh, at times overwhelm a country with, with opportunities uh, for uh, new initiatives. And this really needs to be managed, I think, particularly if one's dealing with a reform program, so that one's got both a, a lengthy period uh, over which the reform is conducted and uh, a logical sequence of events. Uh, but that's not to say that uh, one can't act opportunistically when changes happen that, that will facilitate some reform uh, that has previously been hindered. I think the problem with uh, development agencies is that sometimes uh, there are many schemes afoot and that if a country doesn't like the opportunities offered by one, it can say, well, okay, we've got something else coming along. I think in terms of reform of uh, public financial management, uh, you need a, a, a carefully constructed program of work and you need a long period of time. The agencies themselves are often not keen on uh, commitments over more than a few years, but programs of change for corruption could take a decade or more. And so one needs a, a controlling influence there, working with the country concerned uh, to get the long view. Going back to where we started, what's your reaction to the anti-corruption summit in London? What do you see as the most important pledges and proposals that came out of it? The summit really reviewed a whole series of uh, initiatives that are in progress at the moment. It acknowledged the UN and OECD conventions. It looked at transparency that is being uh, developed in uh, in the financial services evaluation schemes by the IMF. To me, the, the summit was, was more a review than it was a, a series of new initiatives. Hopefully, what it has done is bring together world leaders who uh, might otherwise not talk about this issue too regularly and persuade them to, to see this as a, as a regular issue for discussion. Japan's going to take it up in the G7, and there's going to be a further meeting in the margins of the next UN General Assembly. So, I mean, hopefully, the thing that comes out of this is a growing recognition that corruption is a major issue for the developing world, but for the whole world, too, and that leaders have got to take time on it. They've got to collaborate with one another on it. That the West has got a serious responsibility uh, for their part in the corrupt environment and that they need, all need to work together. Of course, America has got a new president in the offing. One would hope that David Cameron could move on from this summit to uh, engaging new president in his agenda and seeking leadership from him or her when the time comes. Also, perhaps, uh, also binding in uh, the major development agencies and seeking their collaboration with the shaping of this agenda. I think it's a question of agenda shaping rather than a single major step that is going to be crucial 
to to the future of uh, combating corruption. I, I don't think that's quite where we are right now. And finally, to what degree do you see the war against public sector corruption impacted by the Panama Papers scandals? A serious new motivation for reform or just incentive for the rich and powerful public and private to set up new channels and walls of secrecy? Uh, <laughs> uh, well, I think it's uh, uh, bad for Mossack uh, Fonseca, uh, good for the security industry. But I think that momentary attention, you know, if it's, if it's focused properly, can be helpful. If there is a real commitment behind it, then this could be good. Tax havens clearly need to be addressed. I think if, if the Panama Papers have done anything, it's to put across to the general public that there is something fundamentally wrong here. Frankly, I think that if something has to be done, then I think the West uh, really has got to produce a package that attracts the tax havens. They do have a great deal of independence, I think more so than comments sometimes uh, lead one to believe. Uh, they'll need persuasion, I think, firm persuasion, but persuasion nevertheless. And if that can be done, then there might be some serious benefits to the world at large. David Fellows, thank you. Thank you very much, David. David Fellows is a principal of PFM Connect, covering public financial management for development projects in Africa, Asia, and the Pacific Islands. The recent WPJ blog post he co-authored is headlined, The Challenge of Public Sector Corruption. Featured in the WPJ spring issue, Black Lives Matter Everywhere, you'll find articles about black power in the French banlieues, about race and revolution in Cuba, and about building black solidarity across national borders. And listen next week when our podcast will focus on the new WPJ summer 2016 issue, Renegade Cities, and how they cope when state and national governments fail them. World Policy on World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, managing editor Yaffa Frederick, podcast producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern.